Donald Horne is famous for having made the phrase the lucky country describing Australia. But how lucky is Australia and how long is that luck likely to last? And what's the role of population in Australia's luck? Do we need a large population? Do we need a small population? There are different opinions on this. But one person with a strong, outspoken position on it is Kelvin Thompson, the member for the Federal Electorate of Wills. Now, Kelvin, just a small matter of protocol. Shall I call you the Honourable, the Right Honourable, Mr Thompson? No, no, well, uh, uh, Kelvin's the, my preferred uh, method of description. Yeah. When do you remember getting first interested in politics? Was your family politically oriented? Uh, it wasn't particularly politically oriented, and, and indeed, to the extent that it, it was, it was actually on, on the other side. My, my father uh, always voted Liberal, and, and my mother had um, uh, followed him in that regard, although her family had a, a Labor background. But uh, as a family, we got involved in, in and interested in environmental issues uh, during the 1970s uh, when I was a kid. I got interested in Australian birds and plants and animals and one of my brothers shared that uh, interest. Indeed, he went on to do a PhD in forestry and, and came to uh, ANU and to CSIRO uh, here in Canberra in that regard. Uh, he discovered a, an acacia out in central Australia, which was unknown, so the, out, out there somewhere there's an acacia Thompson eye. Uh, but I took the interest in birds and plants and animals in a political direction. I got interested in conservation and environment issues uh, and I got interested in politics because I realised that it was governments, for better or for worse, that made the decisions about environmental outcomes. And it was a time uh, from 1970 onwards where you had the, the flowering of the modern conservation movement and, and in Victoria there were uh, issues to do with the future of the Little Desert and the Lower Glenelg River which activated uh, people who were interested in the environment in Victoria and I and my family were part of that. So was there a key moment? Do you remember one day going, oh I should do politics or was there a key person who said, Kelvin, maybe you should be thinking about politics? That's a, a, a very good question. I think that um, uh, I was getting interested in, in political issues throughout my secondary school years and I remember doing um, presentations to uh, my classmates about uh, things like irrigation and, and the like, uh, but I, I certainly didn't uh, think of myself as becoming a, a, a politician until quite some time later. Uh, when I went to uh, university at, at Melbourne University, I, uh, I took on a, an arts degree in history and politics, and uh, I think I was becoming increasingly political during my university years. I was a fan of Gough Whitlam. I thought that the things that he uh, stood for were good things for Australia, uh, and increasingly I, I thought that it was the Labor Party which offered... Uh, the best environmental outcomes. I thought you, you won't always win with the Labor Party on environmental issues, but you're much more likely to than uh, with the, the Liberal or National Parties. And uh, um, late 1974, I, I joined the Labor Party at, my lo at a local branch. So your, your family had a Liberal leaning. Uh, you had an environmental sensibility. 
So why did you not think about the Greens instead of the Labour Party? Uh, well, there was no such thing back then. Uh, they're, they're a much more modern phenomenon. Uh, but I think I was uh, always interested in uh, mainstream politics and, and in uh, being part of a government and being able to uh, affect change rather than simply sit on the, the sidelines. But uh, as I say, there, were, there was no Greens Party back then and, and the Labor Party seemed to me to... Uh, have reasonably strong environmental credentials. Uh, uh, the Whitlam government with Tom Uren as environment minister did lots of good things on, on that front. Did it trigger any raised eyebrows in your family? Uh, we kind of crossed as a group. Um, my, uh, my father uh, decided he liked John Gorton and when John Gorton was... Uh, upended by Billy McMahon, a sitting Prime Minister, let me say, who was voted out by his uh, own party, um, my father decided uh, we should not support Billy McMahon and we should cross to the other side. Uh, my, my mum took a little bit longer. She didn't come across until uh, Gough Whitlam was sacked by uh, Sir John Kerr and she thought that was that was a bit much and went off to the local federal MP's office to help out as a volunteer. When did you see the opportunity to actually get into politics? Was there some opportunity that you saw that sprung up and you went, yes, I'm going to try that? Uh, I joined the Labor Party at, at the end of 1974 and I, I got involved in uh, local community things. I, I'd always, you know, from the time I was a teenager, I was involved in uh, local community things rather than in student politics. I was never, never a student politician. Uh, but I was interested in uh, local environmental groups and local political issues. And so as a member of the, the Labor Party, I became a, you know, a branch president and secretary and involved myself with campaign committees. And by 1981, uh, I was 25, um, some of the party elders... Uh, decided that I was the right person to stand for a council vacancy and a council vacancy had arisen in the, the city of Coburg and I, I contested that and I won that and so I became a, a councillor for the city of Coburg from 1981 through to 1988. Now, with council, it, it can be quite tough on, on people and some people aren't really cut out for it and... Uh, you can find that you don't really like being at home on Sunday night and finding the phone rings from, from a ratepayer wanting you to help them because they've got a problem with a water main. Uh, and and some people who, who can't or, or are ineffectual in resolving people's problems find that the electorate thinks that politics is not the, the calling for you. But if you do have a, a, a bit of a flair for it and uh, are prepared to work hard... It is a good political springboard. You can put together a support base. You have access to the local newspapers. You have access to um, sporting groups, uh, senior citizens groups, uh, uh, some of the ethnic community groups. So uh, during that period, I was able to develop quite a strong local support base. Uh, I didn't know if any... Um, parliamentary vacancies if and when any parliamentary vacancies would occur but by that time once I'd, uh, once I'd been on council for a while I thought I'd, I would like to be a member of parliament and uh, the, in the, with the Victorian state parliament uh, they drew up a set of electoral boundaries 
where they created a seat known as Pasco Vale, and it was it was just about drawn around my support base. It was as if I'd gone out there and, and drawn lines on a map to to suit me. However, I my um, instant interest in this was uh, thwarted by the fact that this same redistribution had cost the uh, uh, Speaker of the Victorian Parliament at the time, Tom Edmonds, his seat, and the Premier John Kane said, "Well, that, you know, Tom's got to do that seat." So, so I had to uh, uh, cool my heels and and wait a little longer. But I, I got the opportunity in the the next Parliament. I, I was elected to the Victorian State Parliament in 1988. Well, you mentioned local council politics, but as an outsider looking in at federal politics, it seems like a pretty rough and tumble kind of place. How do you find that? It is pretty rough and tumble. I don't think it's for the the faint-hearted. Uh, and you've got to be uh, pretty thick-skinned. You've got to be prepared to accept uh, criticism. And uh, I think Bill Hayden said that there's... Um, no such thing as permanent loyalties, only permanent interests, and and uh, uh, people can be up, upset and hurt when people who have been their friends and supporters desert them and decide they're going to support somebody else instead. Uh, I think the um, uh, the media is pretty tough on us. I think the the uh, media does not project a positive view of of politics or or politicians. It uh, uh, you can you can do a hundred things well, but if you do one thing badly, the, the the media will want to accentuate that, and they do tend to feed a, a public perception of of politicians as um, uh, lazy, overpaid, and in it for them only for themselves. I, I think that's unfair. Most of uh, my uh, political colleagues, even people with whose views I disagree violently, I think uh, most of them uh, are in. Uh, politics because they have a view about the the kind of society that uh, we can and and should live in rather than you know out of out of personal interest. So do you, do you find the media somewhat negative in general? Yes, I do, and I, I think it's increasingly the case. I think it was uh, uh, there were more positive features of it when I was first uh, uh, elected to to parliament, or even back before that in in my uh, council time. I felt that. Uh, there were um, uh, more positive views about the political process being uh, being put forward, whereas whereas now I think it's um, pretty much a race to the bottom. Mm. And what about your colleagues in Parliament? Is that seems pretty rough and tumble too? Yeah, so it's uh, um, it, sometimes it does feel like it's a body contact sport, and and uh, people look for the uh, the weaknesses in. In, in political opponents and seek to exploit them and, and uh, uh, use pretty rough and uncharitable language. Uh, we all uh, we all succumb to that uh, temptation from time to time. I think it would be better if we did less of that and did more uh, of the positive stuff, that is putting forward policies and putting forward our own suggestions as to uh, how Australia might be a better country. Mm. Would you like to see a change in the tone of politics in Australia? Does it seem particularly negative at the moment, more than it has been in the past? Uh, I, I think it's uh, very negative in in tone, and I would like to see that change. But whether that's realistic, time will tell. I think that each side responds to what they see coming across at them, and if if 
uh, either side is aggrieved, it tends to uh, lead to a, a lowering of the tone of the place, and I, I think that's unfortunate. It, it would be better if um, uh, media rewarded uh, sensible comment and, and considered comment, whereas what it tends to reward are the you know the brutal one-liners attacking uh, opponents who. Uh, and, and nothing seems to be off limits. It, it's not just about uh, uh, people's political uh, views and beliefs, but you can you can attack uh, aspects of their their personality, dress, hair, you name it. Um, all, all of these things are apparently fair game, and the you know the uh, the more hurtful the remark, the more likely it is to get a run. Mm. Well, given that kind of environment, uh, what motivates you? You mean? I imagine you must get some reward, some feeling of achievement out of being in federal politics. Uh, I do, and a lot of that is uh, local, in uh, right in terms of uh, people being appreciative of things that I and my office have done for them over the years. And I often uh, come across people who say, "Oh, I just wanted to thank you for what you did for me." You know, it might be three, four, five years ago, even even longer, but. Uh, that is very satisfying and I do enjoy that. Uh, federally, I've uh, sought to put forward ideas and, and ad advance a policy agenda uh, and I see aspects of that being picked up by uh, political leaders and parties over time. Uh, you don't necessarily get a lot of credit or personal thanks for that, but uh, uh, just in the, the last little while we, we've seen the government uh, and, and the uh, uh, committee looking at refugees and asylum seekers talking about lifting the refugee intake to 20,000. Now that was a, a proposition that I put forward uh, back in 2009 and over the years it has been progressively picked up by uh, a number of political parties and, and political leaders and a uh, uh, week before uh, that uh, I noticed Julia Gillard was talking about electricity prices and the reason why electricity prices uh, were rising, which uh, doesn't have a lot to do with the carbon price, but it has an awful lot to do with um, uh, population-driven demand pressures. Uh, but interestingly, Julia was zeroing in on the on the size of electricity price rises which have been occurring over the past years, and that's something that I was talking about in, in 2010, saying this is a real hardship for uh, pensioners and people on fixed incomes where you've got uh, electricity and uh, an unavoidable expense uh, increasing dramatically in Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere. Now, I did introduce you as somebody who has outspoken on the topic of population. What, what is your position on population? Uh, in the first place, I think the world's got a population problem. We, we have 7 billion people in the world. We're tracking for over 9 billion by 2050. Uh, it's a dramatic increase on where we've been on this planet for thousands of years. And the impact of that rapidly rising population on our food resources, on our water resources, on our uh, energy resources, on carbon emissions, on stocks of fisheries, on um, endangered species, the, the way in which we're being urbanised and seeing these mega cities spring up of tens of millions of people. Uh, this seems to me to be a, a real problem. I also think that Australia has a population issue, and people might, you know, they might intuitively think. Oh, but we're a comparatively sparse continent. But the truth is that most of Australia is arid and unsuitable for human habitation. 
and that our population has increased dramatically in recent decades and is now projected to be uh, 36 million by 2050 and I think that the impact of 36 million by 2050 and rising by the way, no suggestion that it will level out at 36 million, the impact of that on our food resources, on our water resources, on our energy resources, on uh, cost of living, on the quality of life in cities with uh, traffic congestion, uh, high rise, uh, decreasing housing affordability. One of the things that worries me is that uh, when I was 25, I was able to put down a, a deposit and take out a mortgage to buy a home. Uh, my children are not in a comparable position, and I see lots of uh, uh, youngsters around me who are no longer able to afford a home uh, anywhere within Cooey of where they grew up. So there are lots of issues surrounding the population growth which lead me to believe that it's not in Australia's interests and what we have to do is to chart a course to stabilise our population rather than have what is essentially been runaway population growth. Well in the, in the late 1960s there was the Club of Rome that predicted the world would run out of resources. Malthus famously predicted that humans would eat ourselves out of food and our populations would crash but it hasn't happened yet, has it? Well, in, in terms of uh, access to food resources, the truth is that more people are starving now than used to. Uh, we have something like 2 billion people in the world today who are desperately poor, living on $2 a day or less. And the projections are that in future more people will starve, notwithstanding all the good work we do through AusAid, notwithstanding you know, Bob Geldof and all, all the international humanitarian agencies out there trying to help, the truth is that more people will starve in future rather than less and that um, this, will, this is already fueling conflict and will continue to, to fuel conflict. So... Uh, I, I don't think that the, the future scenario is particularly rosy and with all the problems that we have around the world, I can't think of any of them that are made easier to solve with population growth. I think that uh, every problem you think of uh, is made easier to solve in terms of stable population and I think that those countries that have a relatively stable population have outperformed economically, socially, environmentally those countries which have experienced rapid population growth. Well, won't technology save us? I mean, we're getting better at everything every day. I see my mobile phone uh, capabilities are improving enormously. Isn't technology part of the solution? Uh, well, well, technology is always uh, potentially useful and has the capacity to assist in solving problems, uh, but it has not proved capable of dealing with the, the problem of, of world poverty, has, has not uh, proved capable of dealing with the sort of uh, global issues that, uh, that we are facing, things like uh, global warming, global terrorism, global diseases, global poverty, uh, global financial crisis, all, all of those uh, global problems, of course, there can be a role for technology in, in solving them, but ultimately uh, you need political decisions and political outcomes, uh, otherwise my uh, concern is that these problems will only get worse. Mm. Well, from Australia we all look very comfortable. I have my nice mobile phone and we're doing quite well. Thank you very much.
But what about the people in other parts of the world who aren't doing so well? Is this a bit of NIMBY Australia? You know, why shouldn't we say to the people who want a bit of what we've got, what we should, what should we say to them? Well, I, I think that Australia should be a decent and compassionate international citizen. And I mentioned to you before that I've advocated an increase in our refugee intake from uh, 13,750 to 20,000. And I'm really pleased to see that there are now concrete steps in that direction. I've also advocated an increase in our aid program to the uh, 0.7% of uh, gross national income advocated by the United Nations and which has been picked up by some countries over the years and I'm pleased that our aid effort uh, is increasing in the way that it is. But migration as an answer to the world's problems simply will not work. As I mentioned earlier, there are 2 billion people in the world who are living on $2 a day or less, the United Nations definition of extreme poverty, and it's pretty hard to quibble with that, that definition. Their numbers are increasing by around 80 million a year. There is no country which can solve that problem. Not, not the US. The US is taking in a, a million people a year. I personally think that is too many for the United States. It is not helping uh, their country and not helping them with their circumstances or protecting their environment. But it wouldn't matter how many people they took in, they would still not be able to solve the world's problems via migration. America can't do it. Australia can't do it. There is no country that can do it. You have to solve global problems by helping people where they live through the aid programs and through the other means that we have at our disposal. So apart from refugee policy, uh, what other changes would you make to Australia's population policy? Do we have a population policy? Well, uh, we do have a population policy and it's uh, interesting given uh, the, the fact that uh, back in 2009 I, I started talking about this issue and we did get a population debate happening with people like Dick Smith talking about it. And subsequently, uh, in 2010, the Australian government appointed a minister for population and, and uh, uh, went to work on a population strategy. That strategy does not have any numbers attached to it. And the problem with that is that uh, we're still essentially looking at net overseas migration of 180,000 a year, uh, which is the thing that is keeping us on track for the 36 million by 2050 that I referred to earlier. My view is that we should be seeking to stabilise our population and that stabilising it at, at 26 million or 27 million rather than going up to 36 million and beyond would be much better for this country. It can be done. All we have to do is return our net overseas migration to more like 70,000, which was the kind of number we had as recently as the 1980s and even some years in the 1990s. And if we were to uh, have that, that's not no migration, it's not even no net migration. So 70,000 net migration, uh, that would be achieved... Uh, best in my view by cutting back on the migrant worker programs, the, what's referred to as the skilled migration program, which has rocketed up over the course of the, the past 15 years or so. Uh, back in 1995-96 it was around 24,000, now it's more like 124,000. And 
I think that is at the expense of Australian workers. It leaves people who are presently unemployed or on uh, disability support pensions and the like without prospects of, of work, without the capacity to participate in the mining boom and the like. So I don't think that's good for Australia and I don't think the population growth that it fuels is good for Australia. Well, you mentioned the mining boom. Don't we need the workers to run the mines and don't we need to support an ageing population? We, uh, we do need workers for these things, but we have workers for these things. And uh, um, I've had uh, people in my electorate and my colleagues all, all report people from uh, their electorates uh, saying they have applied for these jobs and they have been overlooked and ignored, even though they are perfectly happy to go to remote parts of Australia and Western Australia and Queensland, even though they have relevant qualifications, uh, they are overlooked. So I think that the skills crisis is greatly exaggerated. Uh, I think regrettably there are companies who want to employ overseas workers rather than Australian ones, and I think that that attitude is wrong. So now Australia recently had the food report issued. What did you learn from that? Well, uh, food security is going to be a really important issue for uh, Australia in the years down the track. It's one of the reasons why I think we uh, need to take action to cut our carbon emissions and be part of the global effort to do that because uh, if we don't, we are likely to experience uh, droughts further on down the road which will damage our food production capacity. I also think there's an issue with the um, uh, Australian ownership of both land and food production companies. Uh, that, that has clearly been uh, changing where you see uh, foreign-owned companies uh, purchasing both Australian farmland and Australian food-producing companies, uh, sometimes doing that through intermediary companies, so it's not obvious that the... Uh, the companies are foreign-owned, and I think that if we're going to secure Australia's prosperity and independence into the future, uh, we need to be much more aware of that, and I think we do need to have uh, registers of uh, Australian uh, land and uh, food production capacities that enable us to understand uh, what is Australian-owned and what is not. Now, in federal politics... The question of population seems to be, for the most part, a deathly silence. Do you feel like you're a lone voice? And, and how do you get your colleagues to uh, get interested in this question? There are some, uh, to be fair, there are some other MPs who are also concerned about uh, this issue, and um, people like uh, Mel Washer on the other side of politics and the independent Rob Oakeshott have uh, spoken about it, and there are some of my Labor colleagues who are interested in it as well, uh, but it's it's fair to say that it, it doesn't occupy the uh, political time uh, that I believe that its urgency and importance requires, and that's, uh, that's disappointing to me. I, I think, unfortunately, um, uh, large companies in Australia and uh, those involved in, in property development and real estate in particular have a view that uh, rapid population growth will uh, increase their uh, company profits and, and shareholder returns and think that um, that is the, the easy way to increase profits and strongly support that. I don't think that's in Australia's long-term interests, but they do uh, pursue that political agenda relentlessly and press that view on both the coalition side and the Labor side of politics. Well, 
So it's easy to see some uh, immigration bringing in skills and people and their own small amount of capital. But what, what are some of the costs of immigration? Well, the first issue is that it greatly increases the infrastructure demands. Uh, there's a Queensland academic, Jane O'Sullivan, who's done some really interesting work on the the burden of what she calls the burden of durable asset acquisition, which <laughs> sounds a bit academic, but I, I tell you what, any, any governments and political parties that properly understand this uh, will stay in government for years and years and years, as opposed to what we've seen in, in Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland, where governments get thrown out because they are not meeting the needs of people in relation to infrastructure. You see it in Brisbane, you see it in Sydney, you see it in Melbourne and it goes across political parties. Labor will be in for a time but then uh, the, the electorate will decide you're not you're not solving these problems and then the Liberals will get elected and the electorate will decide you're not solving these problems and they'll, and they'll get thrown out too. But the point is that in those cities we're experiencing rapid population growth that neither local government nor state government nor federal government can keep up with the demand for infrastructure. It's just not possible. So you either get uh, traffic congestion and housing problems, uh, high-rise loss of planning rights and all that, and the other side of this is cost increases. So local government rates keep going up faster than the rate of inflation. Electricity, gas, water, all those things going up faster than the rate of inflation to try and meet the infrastructure uh, task. And so that that has been very politically potent and it has uh, led to the uh, demise of, of governments. Uh, I think that the, the costs of rapid population growth in terms of traffic congestion, in terms of loss of open space and say in planning matters, in terms of cost of living, uh, declining housing affordability, they are all very serious. And to come back to the, uh, the issue we were talking about at, at the start when I got interested in politics because I, I wanted to uh, protect Australian birds and plants and animals. I think Australia's got a magnificent environmental heritage and the things that we have, uh, kangaroos and emus and koalas and lyrebirds and platypus and echidna and so on, things that no other country has got. And I just think we have this, this rich and magnificent uh, bird life and plant life and animal life. That population growth puts the heat on them and we see lots of species... Uh, declining and becoming uh, endangered and I think uh, frankly it's only a matter of time before some of the bird species become extinct because it's simply not possible for us to kind of run around like firemen with a blanket catching catching every species as it uh, as it declines so and, and population growth is really a key driver of that problem. Now, do you think the average Australian sees the connection? What do you find the attitude of most Australians is to population? Uh, it, it's interesting because the, the studies have consistently shown uh, two-thirds to 70% of Australians not supporting the rapid population growth and not supporting uh, the levels of migration that we have. And I think it's a pity that political parties don't pay more regard to that. Obviously there are divided views and some people are, uh, are in favour of the uh, of the rapid growth or, or think that it's inevitable and that there's nothing you can do about it. 
that's not true. If we cut the migrant intake back, if we cut the migrant worker intake back, uh, we would find that we are able to stabilise our population. Uh, and yes, there are people who are concerned about uh, population ageing, but the, the truth is that population ageing is a, uh, a good thing for a, a country. The, the countries that have older populations are uniformly healthier wealthier and more successful than those that have very young populations it's a it's a sign of success so changing the rate of population growth globally and in fact australia it seems like a difficult problem what would you do generally what kind of measures could we take to limit population growth in Australia's case, the task is comparatively easy. It's simply a question of returning our migration levels to the kind of migration level we had back in the 1980s. Uh, for some other countries, this is more challenging, but uh, fertility rates in a lot of African countries uh, are very high, and yet um, studies show that a lot of women would prefer to have smaller-sized families, so it's a lot of this involves empowering women, giving them access to contraception, giving them education so that they have career opportunities of their own. Uh, and there are different ways in which population uh, should be dealt with in each country. But I, I essentially think that each country has the same task, which is to stabilise its own population and effectively to get its own house in order and in some respects that's a lot easier to do conceptually than to solve the problem of carbon emissions where uh, there's this historical legacy going on and some countries uh, in the US and Europe and, and Australia have had the good life and other countries have missed out and those countries are going well hold on we want to improve our, our living standards and catch up to where you are. In relation to population I think that every country around the world which is able to stabilise its population will reap economic benefits from doing that, will reap social benefits from doing that and will reap environmental benefits from doing that. So I think that there are different ways it should be handled in each country but the end objective is the same. So Kelvin, if you were to project 50, 100 years into the future, what do you see? Are you optimistic? Uh, I'm not as optimistic as I'd like to be. I, I think that uh, the, the future looks to me like a world of ever-increasing size cities uh, and that within those cities uh, congestion and quality of life issues are likely to become uh, ever more significant and that the, the quality of life in a lot of our cities is likely to decline and that competition for scarce resources, food, water, energy, space, that sort of thing is likely to fuel conflict. So I, I think that the, the picture up ahead is difficult. Um, one of the things that I've said is that we have an obligation to pass on to our children and to our grandchildren a world in as good a condition as the one that our parents and grandparents gave to us. And it seems to me that at present, with, with some honourable exceptions, there are some countries, that, uh, Norway and Sweden, Denmark, some countries which have stabilised their populations and, and which are in very good shape, but with a few honourable exceptions, uh, that we aren't really succeeding in that task of handing on a on a community and a world in as good a shape as the one we were given. 
Well, Kelvin Thompson, thank you very much for your time today. Good to talk with you.